Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hi, this is Matt Shaw from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It is my privilege to introduce episode 34 of the Silmarillion Seminar. This session is devoted to the first half of the last section of the Silmarillion, of the Rings of Power and the Third Age, in which these tales, sadly, come to their end. The group wrestled with the fundamental essence of the ring, its powers and properties, employing the time-tested method of comparison by juxtaposing the nature of the rings of power with the greatest works of craft of the first age, the Silmarils created by Feanor. Let me take a moment to extend thanks to those who made the seminar such a rewarding and fun experience for me. First, I'd like to thank Dr. Corey Olson and the Silmarillionaires. I first read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings 35 years ago. I grew up in a rural area with no libraries or bookstores. I became aware of Tolkien through a teacher. Thanks, Miss Barnack. However, none of my friends read for fun, let alone read fantasy. So for too many years, I had no one with whom to share my passion for Tolkien's works. I've had a wonderful time participating in the discussions with a diverse and very shrewd group of participants. I'm very proud to call these people my friends. Special thanks should be extended to Laura Burkholtz for her yeoman-like work taking dozens and dozens of hours of raw recordings from 16 different mics over very erratic internet connections and creating comprehensible podcasts to be shared with the world of Tolkien fans. Laura, kudos to you, and of course, Helcaraxa. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge the unsung heroes that made the seminar possible, Dr. Corey Olson's family. Special thanks to Mrs. Tolkien Professor and the two little professors for sharing their husband and dad, allowing him to bring much joy to devoted fans of J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, good evening everyone, and welcome to what, according to my plan anyway, is the penultimate session of the Silmarillion Seminar. Um, We are today beginning the last section of the Silmarillion. We have done the Ainuindale, we have done the Valaquenta, we have done the entire Quenta Silmarillion, and we have finished the Akalabaith. And that brings us down to the final and actually fairly brief section of the Silmarillion of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, in which these tales and this seminar come come to their end. So, um, the couple sort of brief preamble things uh, that I want to say before we get started here uh, with the actual, you know, working our way through the text, is to sort of keep in mind things which are really pretty obvious when you read it, but I just want to sort of make sure to emphasize it at the beginning. Um, And that is, basically, I want to make sure that we're coming at this uh, from the right direction. Um, Namely, as that we're coming at it literally from the right direction that is from the fr- from the from the front instead of the back what i mean by that is coming to this here in the silmarillion chronology it seems like you know that this comes this sort of naturally flows out of the first age material that is okay we've what we've been reading all the way along has been in a sense um i, I almost like prequel material, right? Like, you know, the Silmarillion is like a really high-end, high-class prequel to The Lord of the Rings. Um, And so, therefore, we might be sort of tempted to see 
this passage, this 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 bit, the third age bit, standing in relationship to the Lord of the Rings material, as if it were the stuff that came before. We've been talking, you know, all the way along, off and on, about the sort of the background material, some of the stuff in the Book of Lost Tales and things like that. And you know, we've we've noticed on many occasions how many of the, how much of this material, uh, you know, was written well before the Lord of the Rings and and uh, and really comes before it. And we've talked in some cases about how some of the material from later on was connected to it and kind of grew out of it. But what is very clear from this text uh, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age is that this is an emphatically post-Lord of the Rings document. It relies upon the Lord of the Rings. This is not... Um, you know, so I just want to make sure... And I said this, this, this is really obvious, but I want to, I want to make sure that... Um, I want to make sure that that we spell this out explicitly at the beginning so that we don't make any mistakes as we go through. Um, and the mistake I'm talking about is reading any of this as if it gives us insight into where stuff in The Lord of the Rings came from. All of the stuff in this essay comes after... I mean, the, the stuff in this essay comes after The Lord of the Rings. And so the, uh, the influence, the direction, goes the other way. Um, so we're not working up towards The Lord of the Rings. We're coming from The Lord of the Rings in doing this. Um, and so we have to make sure to keep those, thing, those two things in the proper order. Now, the next thing that I would want to say is, in our discussion of this, I would like to focus not primarily on the connection between this and the Lord of the Rings, which in some ways actually, I mean, there are some moments that are kind of interesting, but a lot of that actually I don't find terrifically interesting, because a lot of it is, a lot of the parts certainly which are most explicitly connected with the Lord of the Rings um, are, in some cases, some pretty some pretty simple summary, but... What I do think is interesting is coming to this from the perspective of the Silmarillion, like in the context of the stories that we've been reading. Um, you know, this is not just like the bridge between the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. Clearly how this, based upon the title which I just read, or rather the subtitle, in which these tales come to their end, these tales are clearly the tales of the Elder Days. Specifically, as we've said many times, the tales of the Elves. And I want to make sure that we are thinking about this this story, this essay, this section of The Rings of Power in the Third Age, from that perspective, that this is the last chapter, not just the last chapter in this volume, but this is the last chapter in the story of the Eldar, the last chapter in the story of the Elder Days. Um, and not again, not just to see it as a kind of bridge between the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings as two separate texts, um, but to make sure that we're reading it in its context within this volume here itself. So, okay, after all of that, uh, after after that long preamble there, I want to uh, to go ahead and get to uh, questions or things that you guys wanted to talk about and topics we can start with. We talked some about, you know, we sort of were skipping ahead. I was most guilty of that, skipping ahead to some of the Sauron stuff, particularly when we were looking at uh, Sauron last week and his relationship with Numenor the last two weeks. Um, but, uh, Brandon, actually, if you wanted to talk about that, you just mentioned in the text chat that you wanted to talk about the histories of Middle-earth and stuff. Um, if you have a question about that and how that fits in, you can go ahead. Oh, you have no mic. Okay. Um, okay. Well, then type fast what you would like to do. <laughs> go ahead and type what you want to say, and I'll come back to it. Um, then I will... I will. Uh... Oh, right. It's my fault. Yes, of course. Good point. 
Guess you just you were late joining us. Okay, now go. <laughs> All right, great. Okay, very good. Um, now I just I thought I was wondering, Corey, if you could read uh, maybe a, just the passage of um, uh, of Sauron talking to the men, and um, and and if we could just maybe spend a little bit of time just focusing focusing on what he says and I find it very interesting on what he plays on about you know you know basically the same Numenorean things that uh, we saw before that Melkor used and um, but and he you know he shows humility at first and repentance and all those things and he's actually a great craftsman and, and teaches these things to, to them um, and so uh, but it was interesting I thought this was so cool and this is very Tolkien-esque I would say is that he says at the end uh, of the first of one of those paragraphs, he says, "For you love Middle Earth as do I." Yeah, you know, he didn't probably didn't say it like that, <laughs> but um, right. you know, it's just uh, it, it's pretty cool because it's like you know I don't you know you you love for you love Middle Earth as do I, and yeah, he loves Middle Earth, all right, you know. Yeah. Um. So um, and I just wanted to know maybe if you could just talk about maybe just the. Uh, the origins of Sauron, and um, you know, just take us some through that. Yeah, no, I definitely want to get back, want to come back to that passage, and I think it's especially interesting um, to do some close comparison and contrast between his approach there and his approach uh, to the Numenorians in the Akalabeth. Um Yeah, I mean, I think the glance that we get at Sauron um, in the beginning. Is 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 really interesting. And that's why I, I I was like unable to resist. Um, that's why I was unable to resist uh, 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 jumping ahead to it last time because, uh, the, especially in particular, the the reference to the fact that he. Um, that at least many believe that he genuinely repented. That that he in truth repented, if only out of fear. Um, uh, so that basically. So what Sauron does is not just deception, but active apostasy. Um, anyway, so I think that that's... Uh, um, that, I think, puts his character in an in a different and kind of interesting light to me. It puts him in a different category to some extent, I think, uh, from, from Melkor, who we're told isn't even really capable... Of, isn't capable of that, that, you know, now, I, I don't know, I mean, when you compare and contrast what was said about Melkor, and I'm thinking, of course, of the time when he comes up for his probation hearing, uh, after his, uh, after his three ages out in the, in the void, um, the one when, uh, when Nienna supports him, and, uh, I think that there we're told that what man the thing that manway doesn't perceive about melkor is that all love has gone from his heart forever now the brief repentance that we're told sauron may in fact have doesn't actually say that love hasn't departed from his heart or that he he repented out of fear um doesn't actually mean necessarily that his character is different from melkor but still i think it it, it opens up an interesting possi- an interesting possibility there um dave go ahead Sorry, you're waxing philosophic, and I was just turning to a more mundane point, which was uh, um, I wanted to clarify. That statement is made to the elves, not to the men, right? Right. Yeah, no, that's when he's coming as uh, as as Anatar 
Lord of Gifts, and is um, uh, 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 this is um, the speech that he's making to um, to the 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 jewelsmiths to Celebrimbar and right. and, and, oh, and his totally boys. Yeah. yeah, that's totally different. Then, yeah. all right. But well, the elves I mean, seem it, to have a sympathy. Your point, I think, you know? your point still stands, Brandon. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. um, the, the only thing I would toss out uh, that I don't want to take you off track, Corey, but maybe we can hit, um, hit on this uh, later is. Sauron's different approaches to elves and men, um, and, and we and we specifically hear later that that his first choice is always to rule by fear and domination, and mm-hmm. then he'll fall back on trickery and deceit when he has to. But he always prefers power and domination. And and except in the case of the Numenorians, um, when they come and you know humiliate him, he that seems to always be his approach with men. Like. His, he, he's always subjugating them or beating them down or killing them. But um, yeah. he, obviously sees, he obviously sees that that's not going to work at first with the elves um, and that they may have the power to defy him, so perhaps he, he um, uh, takes the approach of uh, trying to deceive them initially. I don't know. I don't want to take you off track, though, but perhaps we can hit on that point in a second. Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, I think that it, it, it is pretty clear that his... You know, putting on his fair appearance and deceiving the Numenorians by guile is is obviously Plan B. I mean, Plan A was just to stomp everybody that he could and to rule, as you say, by fear and domination. Um, but I mean, he's already he's already gotten himself uh, at the this is the the bottom of two eighty nine and the top of two ninety. He's already gotten himself worshipped as a god, um, and we see how he builds up to that in Numenor. Um, but in Middle Earth, he's already a god. Um, elsewhere, Sauron reigned, and those who would who would be free took refuge in the fastnesses of wood and mountain, and ever fear pursued them. In the east and south, well nigh all men were under his dominion, and they grew strong in those days, and built many towns and walls of stone, and they were numerous and fierce in war and armed with iron. To them, Sauron was both king and god, and they feared him exceedingly, for he surrounded his abode with fire. Um, but then that's when... Uh, that's when our Ferrazon shows up, and Sauron is forced to plan B, um, which is to not just pr- continue proclaiming himself king of the world, which is what he's calling himself, um, but to uh, uh, to let himself be taken prisoner and to proceed by guile. So you're right, certainly he's approaching the elves in a different way. Um, and he doesn't even, as Dave points out, doesn't even approach the, the Numenorians at first in that way. Um, though, notice one small thing. Yes, Brandon, you did just notice it. What do you make of that? Well, first say that thing that you just um, noticed. Well, okay. Um, no, I, I just remember a passage where they say Sauron, who the elves gave the name something. And he had this name, too. Um, But it just seems that, okay, we know by now that names are important. Words are important in Tolkien. They're a feast. They're they're amazing. Um, But um, but but it's not clear to me in the text whether the elves... Well, actually, I have an opinion on that. Um, Whether the elves... it's It's a bad name or a good name or this is a good thing. I would think that naming things through Mythopoeia and so on, um, that naming a, a thing is a good thing. And plus, we're given in the context of that paragraph 
that the elves are under his um, kind of apprenticeship at that time. What do, you, what do you think? Yeah, well, he gives himself the name Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. Now, I, you know, one of the things that I certainly, that I would take from that is that he is... Um, he simply that you know one very simple thing that you take from that is that he's concealing himself. Notice even when he goes to Plan B um, with the Numenorians and goes for deception instead of domination, um, he doesn't. It's not like he, he still doesn't disguise himself. I mean, he puts on a fair, uh, a, you know, a, a, a fair external show, but he doesn't conceal his. It doesn't attempt to conceal his identity. He still shows up as Sauron, and allows himself to be taken prisoner. Everybody knows who he is. Um, and, of course, what he just ends up doing is convincing Arpharazan that he's a great guy. But um, but with the elves, he deceives them. He changes his name. He adopts a new name, which is a good name, um, because he doesn't want them to know who he really is. Um, and we can see this is exactly what he does again later on, a second time, though in a different way, that is, when he appears as the necromancer, or the sorcerer of Dol Guldur, he's not letting out who he really is, and you'll remember that Gandalf has to basically, un, you know, uh, discover who he is by sneaking around Dol Guldur at great peril, and uh, discovering that he really is Sauron. So he's being discovered, he's being unmasked. Um, it's definitely a mask in that sense that he's putting on. He never puts on an actual mask in that way. He doesn't conceal his identity to the Numenorians. Um now, I guess it's because his approach is very different, but I think it does still also go back to Dave's point. His relationship with the elves is different, just as his relationship with the Maiar and the Valar is different. I mean, he doesn't... Um, you know, the the business, like the moment when he repents or almost repents, he doesn't even, uh, he doesn't even really dissemble with them, um, and he doesn't mess around with them. He hides until they leave. Um, but, uh, uh, Nick, you wanted to say something about his repentance, since I went back to bring that up, and then we'll come back to the Anatar stuff. But, Nick, go ahead. Yeah, just um, a quick comment on his repentance and how it, it seems like it was out of fear and maybe um, insincerity, possibly. Uh, in Mogoth's Ring, um, Tolkien says that Sauron's original trait that led him to evil was a love of order and concerted action, which he saw in Melkor because he, he saw him as the strongest of the Valar. Right. Um, and mo- most capable of that. And so Sauron may have, you know, seen the error in, in, that, um, in that decision when Morgoth was overthrown and saw that Manwe and Oole and, and the Valar were more capable of order and concerted action. So it, it, may, have been, it may have been a, a really sincere thing on his part. But then, because, you know, he's Sauron's fairly devoid of any ethics, he, um, these other characteristics, his pride, his desire for power, um, take over, and, and he tro- uh, chooses to just not go to the Valar for judgment and just takes off back to middle earth so yeah just that's it just a comment yeah no i thought that's a great point nick and it's 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 good to contextualize that because sauron's conversion what we hear about sauron's conversion is as you say not necessarily at least not explicitly like a moral conversion what we are not told about sauron is that he you know comes before the valar and is like 
I now see the error of my ways. I realize that I have been acting evilly this whole time, and you guys are good, and I'm going to change from my ways And because I realize it's bad. There's nothing like that. Instead, he just says... Um, it, it just it, it fits quite well, I think, uh, uh, Nick, with the speculation that you're making there. Um, Sauron and Truth repented, if only out of fear, being dismayed by the fall of Morgoth and the great wrath of the Lords of the West. That is, on the one hand, he's just afraid of them. But he is saying, like, wow, they actually are greater than he is. Um, you know, Remember the lie, which is to him perhaps not a 100% lie. That is, he seems, I think, to believe it, um, at least in part, about Morgoth, what he teaches to Arpharazon um, about the worship of the dark, calling calling Melkor the lord of all. Um, he seems to genuinely believe that. Um, but now here, so this is why his faith, his faith in Melkor is shaken uh, at Melkor's overthrow. Uh, wow, he actually lost. Um... And as you say, maybe, maybe actually, you know, that his conversion is like an attempt to like maybe I should I should I should get my butt onto the winning side, um, but again, not not a moral conversion, not a I now realize you know the error of my ways kind of conversion, um, and that and therefore it isn't all that surprising, um, as you say that those same moral faults then kick in not to um to 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 sort of perpetuate his conversion but completely to undermine it um jack go ahead yeah um sauron's definitely a very quick quick thinker when it comes to uh his self-preservation as we see when when he uh repents or seemingly repents and then later when um the numenorians come um, and he surrenders, basically surrenders without a fight. And that, that's what I wanted to kind of get back to earlier when you read the passage about um, when he was being worshipped as a god, um, he ruled over many men, he was, uh, it seemed to me, they're building cities, um, seemed to me that was really the height of Sauron's power. I don't think he, he was ever more powerful than at that period. Is that, would you say that's correct? He covered more... Well, uh, like more of Middle Earth than he did later on. Yeah, yeah, because when he when he tries the second time, that is in the post-Numenor phase of his existence, there are all these you know darn Numenorians, you know, right there on his doorstep, you know, Gondor and whatnot. So, um, uh, so so yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that this this time, what is called, you know, what the what the what the elves. Uh, we're told call the days of flight, and uh, you know, the, the, yeah, I, I would say that that's the pinnacle of of Sauron's power in Middle Earth, unless you count the time yeah. when he's basically um, got power over Numenor. But that's kind of a separate thing, right. I think. Right, and that, and that's the point. That's what really came into perspective for me, just thinking back to the Numenorians. Okay, Sauron is at the height of his power now, and when the Numenorians came sailing over, he didn't even put up a fight. I think that sheds some light. It's just interesting. It sheds some light on just how mighty the Numenorians were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, exactly. That that's that he that he wouldn't even he wouldn't even take them on um, at the at the height of his power. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I definitely agree. Um, although, well, we'll we'll come to that a little bit later. Um, before we uh, before we leave 
the um sort of these characteristics of sound behind and I want to go back to the Anatar thing and, and Brandon back to the passage that you were uh that you were talking about at the very beginning and that you asked me to read. I will I will actually now go and read that. And I wanna do what I suggested, which is remember back to the the debate uh that we talked about in, in some detail. The debate between the Numenorians and the messengers of the Valar about the Numenorians desire to go to Valinor. Um Remember that debate, and then look at uh, at Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, speech to the elves here. Page 287. Alas for the weakness of the great, for a mighty king is Gilgalad, and wise in all lore is Master Elrond, and yet they will not aid me in my labors. Can it be that they do not desire to see other lands become as blissful as their own? But wherefore should Middle-earth remain forever desolate and dark, whereas the elves could make it as fair as Erisea, nay, even as Valinor? And since you have not returned thither, as you might, I perceive that you love this Middle-earth as do I. Is it not then our task to labor together for its enrichment, and for the raising of all the elven kindreds that wander here untaught to the height of that power and knowledge which those have who are beyond the sea? Now, um, what do we make of this? That is, I, I'd, I'd like to kind of go through, we don't necessarily have to go through sentence by sentence, but I want to go through and do some kind of commentary here. The one thing that I would just say as a general overview to start off with is, as is true of very many, uh, like all of the best, uh, all of the best con lines uh, are mostly true. That is, you know, like it, the best liars tell the truth most of the time. And there's a lot here, which is not simply, um, which is not simply screwed up, which is not simply just flatly wrong. Um, but so I, I want you to tell me what is, what is important? Do you think what, what things really jump out at you in this passage? And then where are some places, especially where you see, where you see red flags? Um, Joe, did you want to talk about this or did you want to talk about something else? Uh, no, it was about this. I just I didn't know who you were going to call on before, so I kind of backed off. But uh, um, no, it's about this. Okay, uh, go ahead. I'm going to jump to the where it says, uh, "Can it be that they do not desire to see other lands become as blissful as their own?" Yes. Um, uh, that just really stuck out to me. Like, wait a minute, really? I mean, you say that these guys are great, and then uh, they reminded me of Numenor, kind of like how just uh, talked about. It's like almost the same thing as Numenor, but different, because it's like, oh, these guys can live forever, and you can't. And I don't yeah. think he ever really said that. Like, yeah, yeah. That, no, I, I I agree. That was that was one of the ones that really jumped out at me uh, this time reading it through, too, was, you see how insidious that is? Not not just sort of the obvious thing that he's doing to uh, to try to lead them to distrust the warning that Elrond and Gilgalad have sent them, but... But much more subtly, you notice the the kind of because he, he's driving bigger wedges than that, right? Because I, I mean, there are a couple of people who could be accused of doing exactly this. That is staying in their own uh, really, really good and blessed places, and not sharing the wealth around and letting other people. I, that is like, like Numenor, as you say, like 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 Valinor as well, like the Valar. I mean, there's he, he's not, of course, he's very far. Nobody could possibly accuse him of actually criticizing the Valar here. Um, but he is setting up 
he's criticizing explicitly, though, you know, obviously more in sorrow than in anger. He's criticizing Gilgalad and Elrond, um, but he's criticizing them in such a way that makes them kind of sound like the Valar. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I, I think well, it's, builds, it's a really interesting move. He builds them up to sound great, and then he's just like, oh, well, but maybe they don't want it to be like this. They won't but share. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know that. Like, and and but, but again, like, hey, you guys, because remember, th- these are Noldor that he's talking to. You guys know what it's like. You know, you have, uh, you remember Valinor. You know what it's like over there. You know, you've got the Valar back there, and there, and there. You know that you've got you've got the Valar, and you've got the other elves over there in the Blessed Realm, and everything is peace and light and happiness over there. And you guys have been over here in Middle Earth, just getting just getting beaten on uh, and everything's been horrible and what have the Valar done for you? Nothing. They just sit over there you know, again, he's, he's not criticizing the Valar. He's not saying, gosh, it's almost like the Valar don't want Middle-earth to be as blessed as Valinor. Like, they're keeping all the good things for themselves. Why don't you... And again, he's not being critical. He's not saying rebel against the Valar or anything like that. He's just saying you know... Let's do something different. Let's be generous. Let's start a new pattern. Instead of keeping all of our good things to ourselves, like, alas, uh, Elrond and, and Gilgalad seem to be doing, instead, let's share. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, when he talks about people not wanting to share their power, it also makes me think of a, like um, Gondolin, those strongholds where they were kind of focused and they didn't really get out much. I mean, it was a different time, and... Uh, different things are going on, but it almost seems like it's going against, you know, Elrond and uh, Gilgalad, but also kind of against them. Like, you see, that didn't work out very well, them just wanting to keep it to themselves. Yeah. I mean, it, just, it made me think of that as well. Yep. Yep. No, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a really, that that's a, a really devious and clever beginning, I think. Um, uh, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah. Um, just, uh, just a comment on, I think, to take that same passage towards the end where he says um, something about over the sea. Yeah. And if you if you remember, you know, the men must be thinking about uh, Arendo and, you know, the, the story of Arendo and how, so that, you know, men have this longing for the sea and, you know, this one, this, this natural inclination towards the West. And, um... And to really want to go over to the sea, and so it seems like he's playing on that aspect or that kind of because he, he we're told that Sauron's a, almost a lore master as well, and he's um, so he he must be aware of the story of Arendel, and he, and he probably fear, fears it, um, but he's using it um, to kind of you know he knows that men want to travel over there, and you know he's kind of planting the seeds of uh, you know discontent. Well, yeah, and I mean, as Dave is as Dave is r- reminding us, it's 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 the elves that he's talking to, not oh, the men. Yeah. But still, but 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 that's still true. I mean, they they do long to go back over this. We're told that they that that all of the elves, uh, the Eldar in Middle Earth, have this longing for the sea, even though they've chosen to remain. But see, that's what he plays on there. Um, that you are by not returning. To Valinor, you have um, by not returning to Valinor, you have shown that you really love Middle Earth 
and there's something that you want to do here. Clearly, you are here for a reason. Clearly, we should be working together to achieve this great thing. Um, so, I mean, I think that it's... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that it, you can see him kind of extending that idea, I think. Dave? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Brandon, did you want to add to that? Um... I know I'm I'm all set. Go ahead. Okay. Go. Okay. <laughs> no worries, buddy. No worries. <laughs> I would say I think he's playing le- less off a uh, desire for the West and more off a desire of, off of the the very desires that originally brought the Noldor into Middle Earth. Um, you know, like the the I think the people who stayed after the War of Wrath are the people that still haven't quite overcome the the sort of deep-rooted, I don't know what you would call them, sort of psychopathies, but they're not really psychopathies. But these are people who have not resolved the sort of fundamental conflicts they have <laughs> that deep down they want to, to have power, they want to have realms, they want to be over here doing their own thing and not be sort of under the thumb of the Valar in the West. Which is, you know, when we've talked about Galadriel um, and the fact that she... When you know that Frodo essentially puts her to the test, and she says, "I pass the test," and and you know, and you've mentioned this before, Corey, that that is her finally accepting that she needs to go into the West and that she doesn't get to rule her own realm anymore. Well, I, I think we see the same thing going on here. Um, I think Celebrimbor, you know, he he was he he turned his back on his father um, and Nargothrond, and yet he's committing pretty much exactly the same mistakes that Feanor and Feanor's sons create here. That he's he, he's over here, he wants to be his own man, his own boss, have his own little kingdom, do his own things, create powerful artifacts. And and I I, I didn't look to take the time to look them up, but I'm pretty sure in one of his letters Tolkien talks about this, that 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 ultimately the rings are mistakes for the elves. That that the the fundamental impulse deep down that drives them to make rings are not actually good impulses. That this is ultimately them trying to have their cake and eat it too. You know, what I mean that they want to have Valinor in Middle Earth and that, that that's exactly what they're not supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I I agree and I think that um I agree. As usual, Dave, you said like four different things that I would like to talk about, and I got to try to ravel my way back through. Um, Sorry. No, no, that's okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, can I just say I love the idea that like the elves who stay in Middle Earth are the elves with issues. You know that like, it's, it's it's like the, you know the elves who are who are actually in a good place um, were 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 the ones who went back. Uh, the ones who still had some things they needed to work through. Uh, they're, they're they're the ones who stayed. But again, look how clever how cleverly devious that approach is. He is 10 just as he is 10 miles away from criticizing the Valar before, now he is he's he's again, he's 10 miles away from suggesting anything so crude as you could establish empires here in Middle-earth and you could be like gods. He's not saying that. He's saying, "Oh, it's so altruistic. Look at all the good you could do. Think of what a blessing you could be to all of these." But 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 Dave, you're right. This also does play exactly to that desire that we know that the Noldor had 
Um, and certainly, and this is back to Feanor's speech, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to, 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 to had to rule realms uh, at their own command, and we know that, as you say, Galadriel was one of the ones who uh, w- is still sort of setting up for that. Remember, Galadriel has been in her apprenticeship all the way through here, right? I mean, she's been she's been serving as like apprentice elf queen goddess under Melian this whole time, and she's been taking notes. Possibly one of the only people who listens to Melian, and she uh, now is all ready to set up on her own and you know cre- you know be her own little mini Melian and create her own little mini Doriath, and that's what she does. Um, but uh, anyway, so um, so I, I think that that's uh, um. I think that that's that that's really important there, um, you know, Dave. That you can see that he is playing on that desire too. So it's just it's fascinating to see all of the different things that he is playing, but how indirectly and how discreetly he's playing on these things. Um, I want to come back. Um, y- uh, you touched on Celebrimbor and sort of similarities with Feanor, and I want to come back to that. And uh, uh, John, I'm going to call on you in a minute uh, to talk about Celebrimbor and about the rings. But before we get to that, I don't want to I don't want to leave Sauron and his his temptation here behind. Um, so before we get to the rings and to Celebrimbor, um, back to this passage, the passage that I read, uh, the speech of Anatar, Lord of Gifts here. Other things about, because I think, I, I think there are more things there that are interesting. Um, other things that we can see, other sort of red flags or other, other issues there. Chris? Yeah, a, a red flag to me, and actually it dovetails real well with what Dave was saying a minute ago. Um, the part, and I'm guessing maybe uh, Gilgalad and Elrond maybe would like to think that they picked up on this is just the whole thing about um, raising the poor ignorant um, Avari I guess is maybe what he's thinking up to the height and the power and knowledge of of uh, those who are in Valinor let's create some realms I mean almost actually I didn't really occur to me when I first raised my hand that's basically what he's saying but uh, his desire for order his desire for having all things ordered which was what we talked about a little earlier and okay let's make everybody uh, let's enlighten them let's bring them up let's uh, elevate their power and of course under my command right he doesn't say that of course right he doesn't uh, doesn't 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 even give a whiff of that but yeah yeah exactly no i mean and that i think is it's sort of the wonderful thing if you stop and think about it chris as you say you can see that but of course it doesn't sound like that at first right it just sounds like being generous in fact it's this is the opposite of arrogant this is humble right again instead of doing the obviously vain self-centered self-focused and selfish thing of you know just generating lots of bliss in the place where you live and keeping it all to yourself and trying to keep your neighbors, you know, your poor neighbors down um, and not, not, you know, sharing, bestowing any of the good things that you have on them. No, no, no. Instead of that, we have a new model. We're going to go and we're going to enrich the whole world. And we're going to we're going to bring uh, peace and happiness and good things everywhere to everybody on Earth. I mean, wow! Like, how awesome does that sound, right? I mean, that. But as you say, there also is there's there's a kind of cloaked arrogance in that, which is far, which is even more arrogant than what he is 
what he is more directly criticizing, that is, the the arrogance that he is gently suggesting that Gilgalad and Elrond are showing, right? I mean, if you say... Go ahead, go ahead. Gilgalad and Elrond are less susceptible to the temptation because from, particularly with Elrond, but we don't know much about Gilgalad's personality, they've seen, um, just like everybody else, firsthand what happens when you love the works of your hands too much, making making powerful talismans, things like that. But they're, they don't seem to be interested in creating expanding realms. Gilgalad has his little little area, and so does Elrond, and I think they're quite content to, to carry on. Um, so they don't really have the temptation, I think, that the, 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 the smiths of Holland have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, and the other thing that I think that we need to remember throughout all of this is that just what he's describing is actually, from one point of view, one of the possible things that the elves were in fact designed to do. Remember, way, 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 way back, when the elves, right after the elves were awake and the Valar were debating, should we bring them to Valinor or not? We talked a lot about this at the time, as you'll recall. Olmo, who is the primary speaker in the don't bring them to Valinor camp, Olmo's argument was his that is his counter proposal to the let's bring them to Valinor plan was leave them in Middle Earth and his rationale was so that they can bless Middle Earth and help to heal the wounds which Morgoth has made. And that's what Sauron is proposing or excuse me, Anatar Lord of Gifts is proposing, right? Hey, fulfill your destiny, man. Instead of like going and, you know, just Hoarding the bliss over in Val... Share the bliss, man. Distribute the bliss. This is what you guys have been given these gifts, and you should be distributing them. And that's what he's doing, right? You shouldn't be suspicious of me, lest somebody say, hey, who is this guy, and what what is his motivation for giving us these gifts? Well, he's just leading by example, right? Sharing the gifts with lots of people. I mean, I could, this is... I, I, I have always really admired this speech. It is like a... You know, it is like a template um, for deception and temptation. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Nick and... or uh, Actually, Laura and then Nick, and then we'll come back to Celebrimbor. Laura? Yeah, uh, about uh, the rings, um, I just wanted to point out that uh, Elrond does get one of the elvish rings, one of the three elvish rings. So, he does, uh, though. Actually, he gets it secondhand. Uh, Gilgoad gets it first. Yeah, but he doesn't refuse it. And, uh, you know, Gandalf ends up wearing the ring. So, you know, the rings are not are not uh, all bad, at least these elvish rings. So when you're talking about, you know, what impulse is there to, to make this make these rings, if it was really a bad impulse, I don't think Gandalf would be would be wearing them. And also a difference between Feanor and Celebrimbor is that Feanor is making the Silmarils uh, as just beautiful objects. And they don't, not really serving any purpose. Whereas Celebrimbor is, is actively trying to, um, you know, do, do what elves always seem to want to be doing. And that is kind of stopping the flow of time to keep things um, to, to keep things the same and 
for things to stop changing, which the elves don't seem to, to like very much. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to keep that in mind with the rings. It's not all it's not all bad. It's not all good. You know, there's there's the ring of power, which does corrupt everybody it touches, but then the elvish rings don't do that. Right. It's not corruptive in that same way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Nick, one more thing about uh, Sauron, and then we'll, 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 we'll go on and talk more about the rings and about Celebrimbor. Yeah, just a quick question about uh, Sauron and his appearance. Um, at the end of the Akalabeth, it's said that Sauron falls with Numenor and then returns to Middle-earth, but that he is no longer able to keep the fair form that he took there. Yes. Then later on as Anatar, he appeared again in a, in a form fair and wise. No, wait, th- while attempting that's earlier. to persuade men and elves to his service. So why is there an inconsistency here? It's not. I mean, maybe I missed something in the text. Yeah, no, it's, uh, he does Anatar prior to Numenor. Uh, I spoke too soon. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 it's okay. It's I. I there, there are actually, you know, this is one of the things that I screw up all the time is forgetting the relative chronology of this stuff. That is, like, I always associate, because the Third Age is so dominated by the whole Rings of Power um, thing, I always associate the Rings of Power with the Third Age, and therefore forget that the Rings of Power are forged in the Second Age, well before the fall of Numenor. Um, that he, the, the whole the whole Rings of Power dust-up with the elves happens, and he's at war with the elves, and he's thumping the elves, by and large, and then our Farazon comes over and takes him captive, and he sets his... He's, he's already got his ruling ring, and he, you know, puts it in his, like, safe deposit box in Mordor and goes over to Numenor uh, with our Farazon, um, and, uh, and is over there. And then he comes back, and he takes up his ring, uh, and, then, and then the Third Age... You know, and and then he's conquered by the last alliance, and then the third age begins. So I I keep I keep. It's actually one of the like bits of chronology and sequencing that I slip up on all the time, and will sometimes uh, like slip and and catch myself associating the creation the, the the forging of the rings of power with the with the third age instead of the second age. So it is it is it, it can be challenging to keep track of all that stuff. Um. Uh. Let's see. Um, now, let's. Speaking of the forging of the rings of power, let's 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 get back to that and uh, pick up on uh, Dave. Some of the suggestions that you made about the parallels between Celebrimbor and Feanor. Those that clearly is something we need to think more about. And uh, John, you've been patiently waiting to talk about this. So let's talk about Celebrimbor and the rings. Well, let's hope John can get to his mic after after all of this delay and. All my promises, I'd later get back to him. Hello? Oh, there you are. Great. Good, yes, finally. A long-expected party. (laughs) Uh, And now on to the matter of the rings. Now, one matter which I wanted to address here in particular is, why did Tolkien stick with rings? It seems like a very blatant and stupid question, but if we go back to all the tales earlier in the film, we don't get any references to anything like a talisman. Um, which holds so much power as the one, or with such combination to, you know, and relationship to other lesser talismans like the Rings of Power. And I call them lesser only that they are subject to the one, not that they are lesser in being, because they each have their own individual 
you know, I wouldn't say properties, but their own identity almost and, and characteristics. I mean, on one hand, one could compare it indeed like to the Silmarils um, in that there is a focal point around basically, you know, a quest-like object when we get to, you know, Lodar versus, for example, the Tell of Verdun and Luthien, but it's not on the same context. I mean, the one is an object which is apparently evil, the one ring, and yet there is no reference earlier in such magnitude to any other object on the same principle. Also, I was wondering on top of that how the One Ring would have been forged, um, and you know, in which design would Sauron come up with this this machination, this this spell power? I understand the focus is on Celebrimbor. So, returning to the the points of Celebrimbor, I would like to address the fact that Celebrimbor clearly is being influenced by Sauron. So, vice versa, what what you know, what powers did Cel you know Celebrimbor actually? make clear onto Sauron. I mean, was ring-making a part of Sauron's designs from day one? Or were these designs actually planted in terms of their actual objects as, as rings by Celebrimbor? Celebrimbor is, remember, you know, as we've discussed, the, the grandson of Feanor. So what, imagine what Feanor might have done in, in the similar you know, circumstances. Celebrimbor was in Nargothron, perhaps. He, you know, he was well-versed in the lore that was passed down from Gondolin and from Valinor. So taking these earlier writings from Unfinished Tales and putting in this, this category, um, we can basically get a very strange image of elven craftsmanship. And it seems like Sauron's interpretation of this elven craftsmanship in its greater detail. That, you know, that's what kind of stumps me, especially about this whole chapter. Because you know, as the chapter progresses, you know, the, the ring takes hold as basically the chief object of interest as a result of, of course, the Lord of the Rings and its introduction. But tagging in onto the mythology, it seems, there still seems to be some void, some gap, where it's hard to view this in the elven standpoint as in a mere you know, exercise of elven craftsmanship. The, the one ring in itself and of its origins and the other rings of power um, in which it is bound in terms of power is not really exactly um, among the other plethora of objects which is in the whole. And therefore I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. What, you know, the question of the question of why rings you know why rings instead of some other symbol is a complicated one. I mean obviously it's a really big question and I don't know that it's really definitively answerable. Um, and I say that by the way uh Meaning, I don't even think that if 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 Tolkien gave a long, explicit, and very thorough answer to that question, I wouldn't still wouldn't think it was a very definitive answer. Um, but uh, but anyway, why rings? Why rings instead of other symbols? I mean, I think clearly in the context of this book, clearly reading this chapter as the last, you know, this sec- this 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 story as the last portion of the Silmarillion. The only fit things uh, to which we, okay, I got a second. I have to pause for a second. Uh, Brandon, Brandon keeps wanting to go back to Plato. You're thinking of the Ring of Gyges, Brandon, with your Plato references. This is this is uh, exactly. It's okay. all in Plato. What are they teaching <laughs> in the school days? <laughs> right, right. Um, I myself am also, but there are many people who 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 are who are. Uh, 
very antipathetical to the Ring of Gaiji's connection with the Ring of Power. I think that's really pretty silly. And I think that the the Ring of Power, certainly the story of Gollum and the corruption of Gollum by the Ring of Invisibility um, has, at least to me, so many so many similarities to the story of the Ring of Gyges and Plato um, that I think it's kind of silly to be too resistant about um, about that connection. But at the same time, I certainly don't think that he's just thinking of the Ring of Gyges the whole way through. Um, I mean, I think it's a little broader than that. I mean, rings as elements of power. I mean, there's also, we can't forget also the fairy tale element. Um, I mean, the, 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 the story of the enchanted ring in the green fairy book, for instance, um, is, you know, also, I mean, it's, it's a fairly important fairy tale motif as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's, 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 there's kind of a, there's kind of a lot there, but again, in the context here, Rather than just thinking of like what his sources could be or what kind of external things was he thinking about, what I always prefer to come back to is how do we get it? You know, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna do a do a do a Flieger-esque appeal to the text here. What kind of cues do we get from the text in order to contextualize the making of the rings? And the only uh, the only artifacts which do really seem to be. Um, to be approximately is 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 the Silmarils, right? I mean, we've we've got the Silmarils at the beginning, and we've got the rings here at the end. And you know, I don't think that they're obviously not the same thing. Um, they're designed for different things. There's the Silmarils are not the Silmarils of power. Um, John, as you said, they're just be, they're 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 designed to be beautiful, but. Um, um, but I think that they are the counterparts, the only, the only really fair counterparts. There's, there's, there are very few other things. In fact, you know, the interesting thing, the other thing, the other artifact that is given a description um, that we actually get some information about uh, in this passage is the Palantiri. Um, but anyway, leaving that aside for a second, do some more, do some... Uh, and this, of course, gets back to the connection with Feanor, and I want to hear you guys talk about this some more. Do some, do some comparison and contrast. Feanor and Celebrimbor, the Silmarils, and the Rings of Power. Similarities, differences, um, what do you guys think? Dave, you have thoughts about this? Um, yeah, I have, I've got a few thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, not particularly coherent ones, but... Um, can have everything. It's a little difficult because at least in this version of the Silmarillion, we don't um, get a ton about what's going on in Celebrimbor's um, uh, brain, uh, whereas we get a lot more. Well, we don't even get that much into insight into Feanor and what he's doing, right? Um, either. Uh, I, I do think that I do think that the Celebrimbor's example here is eerily reminiscent of Feanor, of this sort of sub-creation gone wrong. Where, where, um, uh, it's, you know, what I mean, like, it, it doesn't seem nearly as benign as Aule, and even he was an instance of subcreation gone wrong. But his subcreation gone wrong was was seemed much more benign. Like his intentions were to uh, to, 
you know, that he just wanted some creatures to love. You know, Feanor, it's not at all clear why he did what he did, except because he could, which, which is, you know, that, that seems like the worst possible justification for doing something, simply because you have the power to do it. Uh, and, and then Celebrimbor, to the extent that we have any idea of what his intentions or reasons were, his intentions or reasons, uh, uh, if we're, you know, we're sort of, the, the best evidence we have is that he feels the same way the rest of the elves who stayed in Middle-earth um, did, and that those were not good reasons, you know what I mean? It was that they they had these this sort of internal conflict, they, the continual desire to have what they would have if they went to Valinor, but the unwillingness to go over and submit. And uh, so, um, he he's almost like Feanor, he's almost worse than Feanor in that way. <laughs> Right. He, we we actually know he had bad reasons for doing what he's doing, whereas Feanor, we didn't really know what his reasons for making the Silmarils were. Yeah, yeah, and from and from what we can see, that is, from what we can see in the Silmarils themselves, the making of them doesn't seem like a terrible idea, and or necessarily connected with any kind of a negative motivation. Where Feanor clearly goes wrong, the 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 obvious first bad things that we get about him are when his attitude towards the Silmarils becomes corrupt. That is, you know, he when he starts to covet their beauty for himself and to have a jealous love of them and to for, and to forget that their their light doesn't come from him, um, and so that to take too much credit and to uh, to be selfish in his love, um, and for it to feed his own pride. Those things are bad. But again, none of that says anything about the Silmarils or about his motivations for making them. And could and all of those things are things which could, in theory, happen to any artist anytime doing anything. So, I think that with Celebrimbor, therefore, I think that we can say, as you were suggesting, Celebrimbor's project of the Rings of Power is more corrupt from the beginning than Feanor's was. I mean, look at the. I mean, from the beginning, they're called rings of power. Now we know that the elves are not. So we are told explicitly that the three rings, for instance, the ones that Celebrimbor made all by himself without Sauron's assistance at all, that the three rings are not designed to dominate other minds and other wills. Um, they're 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 designed to bring healing. They're designed to they're 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 designed to 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 prevent decay. That's those are good things, right? To preserve things, but they're not. But they're still rings of power. Um, in those days, the smiths of Austin Ethel surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought and they made rings of power. Um, but Sauron guided their labors, and he was aware of all that they did, for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and to bring them under his vigilance. Now, of course, on the one hand, that is referring to the creation of the Ring of Power, that basically I'm going to trap them by, I'm going to have them create these Rings of Power, and then I'm going to create a Ring of Power that's even more powerful and is going to dominate them. But... To some extent, this what he's doing is already corrupting them, is already bringing them into bondage. Um, they are still, even the three rings are, in fact, rings, from one point of view anyway, rings of domination. Not rings of domination over other wills, over people. It doesn't give you, doesn't give you uh, uh, power over people, but it does give you power over the primary world. It does make you benevolently, uh, you know, 
kindly, generously, but it does give you control over things. I'm going to try to prevent death. I'm going to try to prevent sick. I'm going to try to prevent decay. I'm going to uh, decide. I'm going to be the boss. In fact, again, just take it, and it doesn't even have to be a big step, take it to its next extreme. I'm going to be the god of my little area here. And I'm going to make it after my image and what I think it should be and how I think it should stay. Um, and I mean, and you look at you look at uh, at Goadriel, and she's you know not far from that kind of you know. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch, and certainly we see that other outsiders do look at her like, you know, is she some kind of, like, woodland deity or something? She kind of looks like it. Her realm is her realm. Um, She made it. Those Malorn trees, she made them. Those are her creation. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew, she says, in the first two lines of her song that she sings. Um, She sang the Malorn tree into being because hey she does that anyway so i guess i think that that's now again their motivations are good but what they're trying to do is trouble from the beginning i mean that 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 exerting that kind of power is trouble um and uh i mean this is what thinking of the terminology uh that um that Tolkien uses in on fairy stories when he's talking about when he's talking about magic um he when he's describing fairy magic elven magic um he uses the word enchantment because and the reason he talks about enchantment there is he's trying to differentiate he he's talking about fairy enchantment as essentially the uh the the the, the logical extreme in terms of of quality um that is of artistic success of subcreation of storytelling of 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 artistic rendition that you can tell a story which people will actually mistake for the primary world um because they immerse themselves in it so completely that's fairy enchantment and he uses the word enchantment in on fairy stories in order instead of the word magic because he wants to differentiate that fairy enchantment, that elven enchantment, from the kind of magic that a magician does, like Faust, who summons, you know, who who wants to to summon up and control a demon to make stuff happen in the primary world. Um, and Brandon, I know you've been talking about, you've been mentioning Faust a lot too, but that's exactly it. Faust is the is the exemplar of that bad kind of magic, like someone who desires to exert control over the real world. That's the dream of the magician. Um, And that's what the elves are setting out to do with the rings of power. They're crossing the line from sub-creation, from artistic sub-creation, to domination. And not domination of people. But again, if you think about it, the ring of power is is not just a twist, a corruption of the ideal of the other rings, it's just taking them to the next logical step, really. Um, so, you know, I think that that's uh, um, that's. I think that we can see this, and then Dave, going back to what you were saying before about already this, the seeds of this kind of questionable desire 
already being present and being evidenced by the fact that they haven't left um and they've they've uh um they 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 didn't go back to valinor but stayed in middle earth you know in part for this reason um um good uh brandon you want to comment on that yeah just just quickly um or maybe not so much because that's how i am um <laughs> but uh just from like an artistic point of view um uh, it seems like these, and you know, let's compare, because you asked first, let's compare yeah. the Palantir, or I mean, the, uh, the Cimarils and, yeah. and the yeah. Ring. Um, and first thing I have to say is that um, it seems that uh, the Cimarils, as bad as Feanor was, it seems that his motivations and intention and everything that he was building, putting himself through, was for, in a, in a way for good. Um, um, but with 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 the ring, what you have is you have uh, evil intention, and we get we, we have a version of this with I forget the name of the sword Turin has, but with that sword, you know, it's already a black sword. It's mm-hmm. already because of the intention the artist put into it. Right. I mean, it it depends. If you, if you, if you don't have if you, if you're an artist and you create art uh, for a pragmatic purpose, let's say to sell a song or to sell this or to for, for whatever reason, a pragmatic purpose, it loses something. It loses something because art is for art's sake. It's to be for beauty. It's to be admired and, and for reverence and to uh, inform the past, the, I mean, to remember the past, form the, the present and the future. And I just think those things are, um, are something that we can perceive as differences. Um, uh, and as far as uh, the ring... Um, the, the, I would have. I definitely think with you know Plato with Gyges, but also Siegfried, um, and you know the, that the Ring epic there. And the last thing I have to say, I'm sorry, this is taking forever, <laughs> but um, <laughs> tangential um, uh, is that um, the how can I say this? Is that the 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 Ring is like okay, it's a closed circuit. All right. It's it's not. Um, it first of all, it draws power. It seems like the people who witness the Cimarils or witness the trees or any other artistic creation that is good um, enliven themselves or are are bettered by those artistic creations and just from witnessing. You know, it, it's something just to be astonished. We're not. We don't usually. We don't always say, "Oh, wow, that was great." But, you know, this, these are real astonishment things that reveal things to you, whereas the ring sucks it out of you, you know, and it sucks that spirit out of you. And it's the opposite of, and I hate to get too Christian, but um, of a sacrament. It's the opposite, well, of, of Lembus, for example, which, which, which fulfills you and, and fills you with this energy and, and you know, um, and, and you notice it's just empty. The ring is just an empty thing, whereas this Lembus or a sacrament is... Um, body Christ is just is a whole thing that fills you um, rather than something that you know you just wear and, and, and sucks the life out of you like a vampire yeah 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 no I mean those the, those are those are great points actually though before we lose uh, before we lose our train here uh, Lara I want to call on you can you say that aloud the thing that you just typed I thought that was really good if you're if you, if you have your mic go ahead and say that okay um as Brendan was talking, one of the things that came to me from what he was saying was that 
when we contrast um, the ring and the Silmarils, that the Silmarils, e even though the oath made them, or made the actions around them evil, the items themselves, they still hallow things, they still ha are considered blessed, and they injure evil, but the ring doesn't have that ability, it only corrupts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, the, what what the, what Brandon and you said made me think of, again, coming back to that comparison and contrast again, is the Silmarils, the rings, all of the rings, are a means to an end. The the Silmarils are 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 more like an end to themselves. And as you say, it's they are pure. They are holy. They're good. There's nothing wrong with the Silmarils. Um, they like does bad stuff happen all around them? Yes, because the people's desire for them is corrupt and becomes corrupt quickly, uh, and then atrocities happen around them. But they themselves, they're not a means to an end. They don't make stuff happen. Um, the ring, the ring of power, certainly uh, Sauron's ring, um, but even the three rings, they're all means to an end. And the end, therefore, whether or not it is good or whether or not it is bad, um, has to rely in part upon the, in large part, upon the motivation of the person. That is, we're told that the three rings are not evil, and there's nothing evil in them, and, and I, I don't see any reason not to not to believe that. But would they remain good? Would they purify an evil person? We're told that in, that the one ring would corrupt even a good person, um, because that's the effect that it would have upon them. That's the effect that the kind of power that the one ring provides inevitably anybody who sets themselves to dominate other people, no matter how good their intentions are, and this is what Goadriel says and Gandalf says, no matter how good their intentions are, anybody who dominates other people, even for good reasons, is going to be damaged by that, is going to be corrupted by that. Would we say the contrary? Would if if an evil person, you know, if Sauron, but even say forget Sauron, say you know Denethor or uh, Wormtongue um, or Saruman or Gollum or whoever, any of these people, if any of them got their hands on Nenya, would a would Nenya burn their hands? I don't think so. We don't we don't get. Um, we don't get that. Uh, I, I, we're not told anything about that. I wouldn't think so. But then, you know, would they be like reverse corrupted? Would they be purified? Would the effect of the wielding of the ring on them um, bring them to healing and benevolent thoughts, just like the one ring brings people to uh, to evil thoughts? No, no, I don't think so. Um, because the power of the three rings could be perverted, could be used for evil, because it's just a means. It's not. It's it's not like the Silmarils. The Silmarils are just they're just light. They're just the purest and most. You know, they are the highest level of artistic achievement by the elves, preserving one of the highest levels of artistic achievement of the Valar. Um. And that's all they are. And that's all they do. They don't do anything else. Um, uh, let's see. Joe, then Dave, then Laura. Joe? Alright. Um, what I was just going to get at is uh, let's go back to Baron Luthien. I mean, 
Luthien herself to kick Sauron's butt, which is awesome. Uh, she was extremely powerful, but here, um, I mean, you see all these elves who are pretty much some of the most powerful ones for the day, uh, pouring their power into this. Even though Sauron taught them the craft, and it seems like him teaching them the craft and kind of controlling it would give him more control over the rings. I mean, still, I mean, to him pouring all of his power into this one ring can control even all of those other rings put together. It just amazes me how you can really see the decline there. I mean, it's been God knows how long since Luthien was around, but uh, still, I mean, it's just interesting how you can see that decline and uh, and just how almost easily Sauron does that, even though Isildur steps on his throat pretty much. It just... Uh, you can also see the comparing chest of elves and men there as well. But, uh, yeah, no, and 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 the thing that I would add to that—that's true. That's true. Though, also keep in mind, this is why Sauron is so vulnerable. This is why chucking the ring into the volcano uh, destroys him, or virtually destroys him in the way that it does. And that's because um, he had to pour so much of his own power into the into that in order to dominate. Kilabrimbor and all the rest of them and all of the other uh and all the other rings um that he um that he he basically he had to he had to pour such a huge percentage of it that if it were destroyed if that ring were destroyed there wouldn't be enough left uh for him to still be able to run the shop um so so I I I don't disagree with you it is a good point the fact that he is able to exert his will over them in the way that he does but um, but but it's but it's actually in that sense not easy to do. It was hard to do, um, but he was able to do it. Yeah, and I wonder. This is almost off topic, but uh, I just um and, I, and I'm pretty sure this is wrong. But um, him pouring all his power into that ring. Um, since he still had the ring on, I just wonder would he have been somehow physically or just himself, just he himself, not nearly as strong, even though he had the ring on. I mean. It just it seems kind of hard for me to imagine Isildur just not necessarily kicking the crap out of him, but putting them down like that, and then um, I mean him still having the ring on. I guess just I mean, I guess yeah. it's a question of were they that awesome or what? Yep. Yep. It just uh, basically, like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were, they were. Though again, I mean, as you say, like it, 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 it took, uh, it took one Luthien to, uh, to do what. Uh, Celebrimbor. Yeah, I mean they, they've got they've got I, they're five people. It's five on one. Um, they're uh, on the mountain when the you know the, when they're fighting against Sauron. You've got not only Elendil and Celebrimbor, um, but according to Elrond's testimony in the Council of Elrond, you've got Isildur and Elendil, and then Elrond and Círdan and uh, Gilgalad. The, you know so. Yeah. Was Galadriel involved with that at all? No, Galadriel is ne- is never said to be there uh, during that last battle. And you think she would be powerful? I mean, she's from she's from yeah. like way back when. I mean, granted, she may have lost power as she aged and went on with the elves, but it still seems like out of all the elves left, other than Círdan, I mean, she could probably come closest to competing with Sauron out of most people. Even though her having her power in one of the ranks still isn't enough to do anything. It just Seems like she probably could have helped out a lot. Yeah, and of course he uh, has a has a, a track record of, uh, as you point out, getting whooped by girls too. So, um, yeah, but 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 I don't know. I mean, actually, 
why is Galadriel not on the mountain is not something that I feel like I, uh, that I fully, uh, understand actually. Um, uh, never something that I feel like I have fully understood. Um, but, uh, Dave was just making some comments, which have convinced me not to call on him. So I'm going to go to Laura. Laura, go ahead. Um, you were asking about, uh, whether the, uh, the three rings would, would purify somebody who was, evil who put them on right right uh, yeah Um, I was thinking about Galadriel because actually she I'm not sure that you know when she first would have gotten the ring that the desire she had to um, rule over others was completely purified from her you know and and she wore the ring for um, thousands of years and it didn't seem to it didn't seem to increase that desire in her, you know. Rather, she sort of lost that desire, and um, you know, in her own words, diminish and return into the West. Um, so I thought that was maybe one example of, of somebody wearing the ring who's not entirely, you know, perfectly good, who, you know, it, it doesn't at least increase that. Um, that aspect of her. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do agree that with Galadriel, it's not that we have... Um, I, 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 I wouldn't take it the next step to say even the three rings are corruptive. Um, and that if you wield one of the three rings for a long time, it will eventually get to you too. I don't... Um, I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I, I don't think we have evidence for that. And, as you point out, if anything, Galadriel is finally coming um you know she does finally deal with her issues so that seems to be a good thing um and obviously the ring didn't hurt her in that yeah and and also you know gandalf is really afraid to even get near the ring of power i mean he doesn't even want to be tempted by it Mm -hmm. but he doesn't have any problem uh wielding the ring of fire right you know he doesn't have any issue with that and he treats it as if it's wholly a good thing Yes, but again, okay, wholly a good thing in that it's not it's not tainted by uh, it, you know it's it's not tainted by evil in the way that the, because of the focus of the One Ring, how its whole purpose is for the dominion of other wills, and that just like that just doesn't add up to a good thing no matter what. It's that power, the power to dominate other 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 wills is intrinsically corruptive that's what i mean that's what is evil about the one ring like what it does can't be done well um what the three rings do can be done well um it was done for it would they were set out they they are they are a good means to a good end but well you go ahead actually you know i'm a little curious about that too because you know elrond has one and um, galadriel has one and they use them you know, in their in their realms, they use them in their countries mm-hmm. to, you know, keep the elvishness in. What does <laughs> Gandalf use his ring for? Well, jumping ahead, um, as uh, you know, what what Círdan suggests he's going to use it for, um, that it will support him that is Gandalf, and defend thee from weariness, for this is the ring of fire, and herewith, maybe, thou shalt rekindle hearts to the valor of old in a world that grows chill. That's it. That's his job. That's what the ring will do. 
Help him to rekindle hearts to the valor of old. Um, okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> it just seems a little different than the other two rings. It just seems like a different, a different sort of purpose. You know. Right. But I think yeah. there what we can see is that Gandalf is using it in a different way. Um, remember, you know, what we see, ironically, is that the wielders of the three rings end up... Um, the wielders of the three rings end up... Al- at least two of the three wielders of the three rings end up almost fulfilling Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, prophecy or accusation, or whatever you want to call it, during his temptation. Um, That is, uh, can it be that they do not desire to see other lands become as blissful as their own? Um, Wherefore should Middle-earth remain forever desolate and dark, whereas the elves could make it as fair as Arisaia? Well, what we have in the latter part of the Third Age, when the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are taking place, are two zones. The two zones dominated by the, you know, stable presence of the Ring of Power, which are, in fact, if not as fair as Arisaia, pretty close to it, and yet right around them, um, the neighboring places, right surrounding it, are, in fact, <clears throat> are, in fact, uh, not so, you know, are in fact uh, 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 dark. You know, wherefore should Middle-earth remain forever desolate and dark? Desolate and dark is exactly what... The area all around Rivendell is desolate. The area right around Lothlorien is dark. You've got the Balrog living on... I mean, there was one point where she had a Balrog for a neighbor on one side and Sauron for a neighbor on the other side. I mean, she used to live within sight of Dal Guldur, of of where the of where of where Sauron's you know well, you know a, like mini tower was you know his uh, his uh, like uh, um you know what is it like his startup tower anyway um so uh, that that's yeah go ahead the elves were at war too I mean they didn't shun from going to war against against uh, these enemies when they could at least. Right. No, of course not. And I'm not really trying to say that Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, was right. But, but again, you see how they have not actually done the, the good thing which Sauron is deceiving them into thinking they should do. They actually don't do. Um, they don't go out... They, at least they don't succeed in it. They end up creating these enclaves, which are good, and that's a really important thing. They end up preserving stuff and everything, but um, they don't... They don't actually... Only Gandalf is actually, you know, uh, uh, going outward with it. Um, and uh, the other... Is, you know, anyway, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to go to... I don't want to... I don't want to suggest, because again, I'm not really saying that Elrond and Galadriel are abusing their rings or are not doing the right thing or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, I think that that's... Uh, um, it's still interesting that we can see those connections between what Anatar Lord of Gifts says um, that they shouldn't do and what they actually end up doing... Um, what they actually end up doing with with the rings... Okay, Dave, go ahead. 
Yay! <laughs> you won't regret this. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I just wanted to read an excerpt from uh, from Tolkien's letter 131, which is to uh, Milton Waldman, um, who is, uh, I guess he's an editor over at uh, Collins. Yeah. Milton, um, yeah, he's and the publisher, basically. Uh, this Brandon is... and Nick were... I was, I was, I was just going to say, What's that? Uh, I was just going to explain, Milton Waldman is the guy who he was trying to convince to publish the Silmarillion. Um, and he was right. going to publish the, yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, that was, he, this is, he had this long sort of flirtation with Milton Waldman uh, in the middle of the publication process of The Lord of the Rings, because Milton Waldman was going, uh, the, uh, Alan and Unwin, who published The Hobbit, had already said they're not going to publish the Silmarillion. Um and there was some misunderstanding there. Milton Waldman is like, dude, I will publish The Lord of the Rings and I'll publish The Silmarillion too. And Tolkien was like, was very tempted. So this is, that's that's the guy he's writing to. But anyway, go ahead. Right. And this, uh, Nick and Brandon are familiar with this letter, so I think this is a popular one because this is the one where he basically, like, just gives a rundown of the entire story and mythology. But there's one very interesting thing on page 151 of my uh, edition where he says, and this is where he's talking about the next cycle, the second age. Um, He says, in the first we see a sort of second fall, or at least error of the elves. There was nothing wrong essentially in their lingering against council, still sadly with the mortal lands of their old heroic deeds, but they wanted to have their cake without eating it. They wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, and yet to remain on the ordinary earth where their prestige as the highest people, above wild elves, dwarves, men, was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. They thus became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time the law of the world under the sun, was perceived by them. They became sad, and their art, shall we say, antiquarian, and their efforts all really a kind of embalming, even though they also retained the old motive of their kind, the adornment of earth, and the healing of its hurts. Um, and then he goes on to describe how, how this is their weak point um, that Sauron takes advantage of. Um, and then he points out that... Um, but at Aregion, where a great work began, and the elves came their nearest to falling to magic and machinery. Uh, and he describes that they create the, the rings. And he specifically points out that um, the rings have this wonderful power of preservation or slowing of decay, which maybe isn't particularly bad, um, but, but it's sort of an unhealthy motive. But he also points out that they also enhance the natural powers of a possessor, thus approaching magic, a motive easily corruptible into evil, a lust for domination. Um, and then they have other powers uh, more directly derived from Sauron, such as rendering invisible the material body and making things of the invisible world visible. And uh, I think, you know, uh, so obviously we shouldn't give Tolkien final say in interpreting his work. We, the readers, should get to. But I think that's a pretty compelling argument that, uh, that, that maybe the rings themselves aren't bad. Maybe, and maybe, Gan- I think Gandalf, more than anybody else, finds the right way to go about using his ring. And, and maybe we could say that, um, that in the end, Galadriel and Elrond find appropriate uses for their rings as well because they end up using them to defy, to defy Sauron um, and not to dominate, but to protect and defend. But at the end of the day, the initial creation of the rings, not too good a thing. And even just staying in Middle-earth for, for those Noldor who chose to, not a good idea. 
Yeah, yeah. No, and that that business notice the reference to machinery in there. I just, I'm sort of latching onto this one thing, but that's exactly what I was de- describing before. Uh, that where he talks about where they fit, where they came nearest to falling, to into to to magic and machinery. Um, this is this is by the way, uh, you know, as I've said as I've said before. Um, in fact, this was one of the like three little tiny blips of me that they put in that History Channel show that I was on, was that machinery, industrialization, one of the problems that Tolkien has with industrialization is that it's like the modern magic, that human beings, through industrialization, through the advance of technology, seek to dominate the world and to bring it under their own power, um, that it is, in that sense, very much akin to magic the bad kind of magic, the Faustian kind of magic, that uh, the, as as I was describing it before. So yeah, I mean, you can see that the creation of the rings of power, again, the creation of something called a ring of power, is an intrinsically shaky thing, an intrinsically questionable thing morally. Um, but, and again, I agree, they're not evil, and they're used well by the people who use them, especially, Dave, as you say, Gandalf. But... Um, but they are st- but but it is it is pretty clear um that uh that there are some that there is some shadiness with this and of course even if we um don't initially see that we can see that just the fact that it's Sauron talking them into doing it probably a bad sign um um now speaking of bad signs uh we have we can see in the Numenorians, uh jumping ahead to the uh to the to the the men, and we don't get all that much. I don't want to spend all that much time on the Numenorians in uh, Middle Earth because a lot of that is sort of, a, you know, a shortened summary version of what we get already in in slightly longer summary version in Appendix A of the Return of the King. But um, the when the Numenorians come back, I want to think in this context with this, you know, this this talk of corruption and fall and everything else. I want to talk about the. Uh, the 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 fall the sin the problem of Isildur and his not destroying the ring um i think that we can see that coming i think that this is not an issue of here's a great guy and a wonderful hero who gets corrupted by the ring and you know who like he's holding the ring and then darn it if he doesn't start going bad as soon as he is corrupted by the ring i think um we can see I, I think we can see some issues in advance. Does anybody else have any issues with Isildur? Do you, see, you know, how do you see um, uh, his refusal to um, destroy the ring as sort of a part of this overall picture? Is there anything you would want to connect it to? Well, l- let me not just kind of ask you to do this in the abstract. Um, let's actually look at the passage. Look at his rationale for not throwing the ring into the fire. Um, Let's see, where are we? Uh, Page 294 and 5. Okay. They counseled him, that is Elrond and Círdan, who stood by, the other two survivors of the fight, they counseled him to cast it into the fire of Oradruin nigh at hand, in which it had been forged, so that it should perish and the power of Sauron be forever diminished, and he should remain only as a shadow of malice in the wilderness, which, of course, is exactly what's going to happen eventually, when Frodo throws it in. Well, you know, whatever, when Gollum falls in with it. But, 
Frodo, of course, failing to do that. But Isildur refused this counsel, saying, This I will have as guild for my father's death and my brother's. Was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? And the ring that he held seemed to him exceedingly fair to look on, and he would not suffer it to be destroyed. Taking it, therefore, he returned it first to Minas Anor, and there planted the white tree in memory of his brother Anarion. Now, um, what do we see here? What do we do with this? What, um, what is his rationale? What's, what's his excuse? Laura? Well, first of all, what is a guild? A wear guild. Good question. A wear guild is the money that you pay. Like if you kill somebody, um, uh, and it, all right. So you've just killed somebody. Maybe you killed them by accident. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you killed them on purpose, but it was in a fair fight, um, or you know, or whatever. And his relatives are going to kill you because that's what they do. They seek vengeance, and they have a right, in fact, to vengeance uh, because you killed their relative. Instead, you can pay a wear guild. Um, that is, it's it's uh, gold, uh, gold for gold for the man. Um, so you pay the wear guild, and uh, and to and then the family of the dead guy agrees not to take vengeance, not to kill you, um, because you've paid the wear guild, and like it's all it's all good now. Um, this is uh, there are places where we see you may remember we had a wear guild paid or at least offered earlier on. Turin offers a guild to meme for his son that Turin's follower shoots with the arrow. He says that he will pay a rich guild um, because Meme's son is dead and Turin's guy shot him and they come back and Meme is there like over the deathbed of his son whom, you know, one of Turin's guys shoots and Turin's like, gosh, I feel horrible about that. I'll pay you a rich guild for that. Um, and that's a sign of, for, by Turin, it's a sign of respect because see, that that's not just like, please don't kill me, fine sir, um, but rather, this is because Turin's in power there. Turin has Meme in his, uh, Turin has Meme in his power right there, uh, so he's being generous to essentially an inferior, at least an inferior in power, and saying, hey, like, you know, I, I, I respect you, I respect your loss, and I'm going to show that um, by offering you a wear guild. Um, so... He says, this I will have, the ring I will have as guild for my father's death. Um, when uh, I remember the first time I saw the Fellowship of the Ring movie, um, when Elrond is talking to Gandalf and Rivendell, and Elrond does his little, like, flashback, you know, and Hugo Weaving is all like, I was there, Gandalf. I remember the day that when Isildur took the ring. And there's, you know, that whole flashback to the two of them at the Cracks of Doom. And Isildur is standing there with the ring, and, you know, Elrond is like, destroy it! And and I'm sitting there thinking, and I, actually, I think I probably, because I'm sufficiently obnoxious, like I actually said aloud this line. And I'm like, this I will have as guild for my... And he just says... No, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, that's not quite so elegant as the original line. But I guess I wasn't really surprised that he didn't make a reference to the Wear Guild because nobody would have understood it. But anyhow, this I will have as Wear Guild for my father's death and my brother's. Um, so Sauron owes him a Wear Guild 
because Sauron killed his father and his brother. That's a pretty big wear guild uh, that Sauron would have to pay. So I'm going to take the most valuable thing that he has. He killed my father and my brother. I'm going to take his 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 ring. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, but th- that seems fair, right? That's all legal and everything. Laura, what do you think? Well, I wonder how much he knew about the ring at that point, too. Did he know that uh, it was the ring that was um, giving Sauron so much power? Well, if we're to... I mean, the way that I understand the sentence that precedes it there is that, you know, that whole, like, uh, um, you know, uh, so that it should perish and the power of Sauron be forever diminished. I'm presuming that they're explaining this to Isildur. You know, that even if he didn't already know it, he... he uh, um yeah he, he he's 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 being told so he knows yeah yeah well these these reasons he gives are pretty weak in my opinion you know i mean a wear guilds i'm sure Sauron has a lot of uh really nice things that he <laughs> could have instead of the one thing that's you know this concentration of all this dark power and um uh and then was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow. I mean, he's he's just bolstering his reasons for taking it. But it seems to me that it's it's the power of the ring itself that's already working on him. Um, that probably being a man, he's more uh, susceptible to the rings, just like the the nine were, the the Nazgul were, and that the the ring is just able to to prey on him because this this isn't really like the Isildur that we've seen so far, I don't think. Um, you know, they in Numenor they were among the faithful and they weren't really um, full of uh, greed or lust or anything like that. So, you know, these mm-hmm. to me just seem like more excuses than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's claiming it. He's he is he is saying, "I deserve it. I should have it." Um, and because and, notice where he goes right after that. You know, it's not just I'm entitled to a wear guild, but was it not I that dealt the enemy his death blow? I deserve it. You know, I'm the one who killed him. I, I should get to take his stuff. Like, so he's basically given two, uh, like, rules of war reason why he should keep the ring. Right? One is this dude killed my relatives and owes me a wear guild anyway. Second, I'm the guy who killed him, and so therefore I deserve to, like, loot his corpse. Um, so, you know, like, it's a, for, therefore for two reasons I should be able to keep the ring. I deserve it. Um, and that's, I mean, think of what Frodo says when standing in this exact same place. You know, what Frodo says when Frodo fails to throw the, throw the ring into the fire, he says, you know, this is this, the ring is mine, right? He claims it for himself. Um, now, Isildur, I think we do get some warning signs from earlier on. You're right. I mean, the, the, the anecdote we get of Isildur in Numenor, of him stealing the fruit from the white tree to preserve the line, um, is self-sacrificing and noble. And we see as we, uh, as, as, you know, we talked about sort of that symbolic moment when his own healing is, uh, is associated with the flowering of the tree, um, the, you know the, that therefore he you know he is he represents the the future of the line and all that stuff um and that's all good the thing that really jumped out at me this time um when i was reading this uh just earlier today was minas ithil 
Minas Ithil, I think, is a horrible idea. I mean, a really horrible idea. Um, and that I think is, is, is arrogant. Um, because notice what they're doing. Sauron still lives there in Mordor, okay? And they've landed there in, uh, in, in Gondor. They landed their havens, which was south of Osgiliath and Minas Tirith. And the, anyway, so they land near um, where they know Sauron's stronghold to be. And so they say, all right, we, you know, Sauron, our enemy, has a crap. He's returned. Uh, he escaped from Numenor when Numenor sank beneath the sea. And now he's back in Middle-earth again. Okay, we're going to stand against him. Okay, that's all fine. That, that, that's all a very good idea. Um, and so they say, we're going to be, we're going we're gonna to get right in his face. So they deliberately set up the center of their kingdom right there next to the borders of Mordor. Okay, fine. So I think like Minas Tirith or uh, Minas Anor, of course, as it was originally, that I think is a really good idea. Minas Ithil, though, Minas Ithil is a crappy idea. Isildur goes further than just saying, hey, we're going to set up, we're going to put our border, we're going to snuggle our border right up next to yours, and we're going to stare at you across the border, Sauron, and we're going to just dare you to bring it. Isildur goes one step further and says, no, 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 I'm going to build my city on his mountains. I, I'm going to go onto his border. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to go right up underneath his mountains, basically in his own kingdom. That's where I'm building my city. Um, because screw you, Sauron. <laughs> I'm Isildur, and I can do it. And we see this is it, it's a problem. Minas Ithil is never restored. They have to just destroy Minas Morgul. But that's the second time that it's taken. When Isildur is in it, he loses it. He can't hold it. Because it's right there in Sauron's kingdom. Um, so, so again, I think that from the beginning, we can see this sort of extra... Like, and it's one thing to be like, I am building, you know, like Anarion does, which is a little bit more sensible. I'm going across the river, and I'm building my for, my my fortress, Minas Anor, later Minas Tirith over here, across the river, right across the river. You know, I'm right here. I'm, I'm, I'm totally the first line of defense. Uh, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna actually kind of think this out a little better. Uh, uh, Isildur, not really so much. Um, more thoughts about the the War of the Last Alliance before that's where it's where I had wanted to uh, to to close today. Um, anybody uh, has anything that they want to mention about the the Last Alliance of Elves and Men here, Laura? Well, this isn't maybe the most constructive comment, but it it really isn't the Last <laughs> Alliance, is it? I mean. It, they, they get together uh, in the Battle of Fornost in in the middle of the Third Age, don't they? The the um, the elves uh, from Curdan and um, yeah. and the uh, from the uh, from Gondor too. They come up. Yeah, when the Gondorians come up and lay the smack down on the Witch King. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's not quite as big, so it doesn't count. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Oh no, and I, and I love Dave's comment uh, uh, in the class notes that, of course, you're also forgetting the Battle of the Hornburg when Haldir and the Galathrim come and help the Rohirrim, which doesn't happen. That never happens. That's that's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, but anyway, no, no, no. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah. But the reason that this is called the Last Alliance, as as is plain, even in the Council of Elrond, when they're telling this story, it's not like this is the last time elves and men will ever work together or ever fight together, but this is the last time that we're going to have basically like two good guy superpowers coming together as 
more or less equal good guy superpowers uh, joining up to fight against evil. Um, in the future, what we're going to have is armies of men which elves are going to come and help sometimes. Of course, don't forget, we also have the Battle of Five Armies. That's also an alliance of elves and men. So, uh, but but again, it, this is not... Um, none of these later battles are like the elves coming together with the men. It's just, it's not, you know, the reason it's called the last alliance is not that the alliance is dead, um, but that the sort of relationship between the allies can never be what it was uh, in the past because the elves have diminished and the men have, have and the men are, the, the men are in a sense increasingly he's getting more numerous and playing an increasingly prominent role uh, in things leading up to the dominion of men. I don't, of course, mean that the men aren't in decline. We know that the men are declining um, from from the Numenorians, um, but they are, you know, and that the, the late Third Age Gondorians are not nearly as great as the Numenorians were. But nevertheless, again, the, the, the dominion of men is approaching, is what I mean. Um, Jack, go ahead. Yeah, speaking of movies, um, one thing that um, pops out at me is that you might not get the sense of how long this uh, alliance, this siege was. I think it says, uh, was it seven years or ten years? I mean, this is a really long yeah. battle. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, and I, I don't remember. I don't remember any other battle being that long. Maybe I, I, I just can't remember. But it also reminds me of speaking of movies again. It's like the Battle of Troy, which was. It was like ten years yep. but in the movie. It was like like two weeks. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly. Ten years is the canonical length. I think um, I can't pinpoint where this is. I want to say it lasted for twenty years, but I'm not. I can't remember the. I can't remember the exact place. Um, seven years, Elizabeth. There is a specific reference to how many years, but that's how many years they besiege Baradur. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, I agree. It is a really long. It is a really long battle. Uh, Brandon. I hate to bring it back to earlier, but uh, I was just going to ask anybody, why are men more susceptible to uh, Morgoth and, and to Sauron than anybody else? Or is this a, a, a point of elvish bias? Because we get <laughs> earlier on when men come onto the scene uh, that, uh, that they, resem- they quite resemble Melkor. Right. You know? um, and what's up with that? Yep, yep. I, I I do think that that latter point is a is a good thing to remember. Uh, you know, re- remember who's talking here when we when we you know, if the humans were telling the story, they would you know they might uh, be able to point out certain similarities and um, you know emphasize some of the sort of uh, uh, you know. Uh, questionable moments in uh in in elven history but i think you know from within the context of this story i think that we can see some some patterns there how do the men get dominated under what circumstances 
do men get most thoroughly dominated by either Morgoth or Sauron? That is, where do they most succeed, with whom, and under what circumstances? Well, in some ways, that's a an imprecise question. That is, because we're told they succeed with almost everybody, except a few people. Um, so I guess a better question would be, what are the people like who don't fall under the dominion of them? Which might help us to see what it is about the rest of the people, uh, the rest of men, that makes them fall under Morgoth and... Uh, in Sauron's way. A um, uh, few of you had your hands up. Oops. Uh, and now you just dropped them, not wanting to answer that question, <laughs> I think. Joe, did you want to respond to this? Mine was actually on something else, but I mean, uh, it seems like uh, the more humble and those not really uh, seeking to better, like, expand their power grasp for things beyond themselves are the ones that uh, tend to avoid Sauron. It's um, it's the ones that are always reaching out for more that uh, are like, oh, hey, yeah, I can take this. Right, right. And that's certainly what we see in the Ringwraiths uh, and the corruption of the Ringwraiths. Um, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, good. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to make the general observation that Sauron uh, seems to succeed with men who want... He offers them power. He offers them some kind of power, something they want. And, and people like Aragorn um, just just know enough to, to not ever trust anything he would ever say. you know. And then um, uh, in Gondor, y- you know, they they know about Sauron. They have a history with him. And, you know, it seems like the the people who succeed with him are the ones who just don't even listen to him. You know, when someone like Denethor gets the Palantir and starts, you know, at first he's not listening to him, but then he starts sort of, you know, getting pulled into it a little bit. Um, you know, Sauron, like Saruman, is just very good at wheedling his way in and, and uh, succeeding by uh, stealth instead of straight on, you know, and that he's a little different than Morgoth because Morgoth was just all out there. I mean, he wasn't very subtle kind of guy, but, um, but Sauron is more subtle and he knows how to manipulate people a lot better. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I think that we can see Denethor, I think is a good example though. I mean, also just look at the people who are, who are in his armies, Look at the the kinds of uh, of you know the circumstances under which, especially thinking back to the beginning of the Second Age, like the stuff we got at the beginning of the Akalabath, and we're told you know back when the lot of men was unhappy. That is everywhere but Numenor um, on Middle Earth, and the kinds of peoples that we're told um, are under Sauron's command. Um, you know, in that passage that I read earlier about the people who are worshiping him as a god. Um, but um so so yeah i mean i think that that's uh remember one of the common denominators 
for men, as they've been described. And again, Elvish bias, but one of the common denominators is that they are um, they're short-lived, they're afraid of the dark. Um, when they are ignorant, when they are not exposed to the light, and I mean ignorant not as an, not as an insult, but those when they are when they, they've not been exposed to the light, they don't know any better, um, and they're living in that darkness, and you know, in the darkness in Middle Earth without um, the influence of the elves or the Valar or anybody else. Um, what seems to dominate them is fear, fear, and especially fear of the dark. It's the fear of the dark that Melkor tries to use against the elves at the very beginning at Quiviennen, and it's what he uses against the men too, and it's what Sauron uses as well. And he's got dark and fire, right? He's got he's he surrounds his home with fire, and that really scares them and makes them think he's a god. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, so I mean, I think that that's. Uh, we we can see, you know, in some ways, we know that there is this natural. We've seen several times references to this this natural kind of westward focus, this this desire to see the light. That's what brought the that's what brought the Adain into Beleriand in the first place. Is that they were following the sun, and they were, uh, you know, they 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 are drawn towards the light, um, and they do seem to have this sense that there is light out there, but. But they're really afraid of the dark, and they can be controlled through that fear, um, and that can be capitalized on. Um, anyway, Brandon, what were you going to say? And then, then we're probably going to have to uh, call it quits for tonight, but yeah. go ahead. Yep, very quickly, and I'm serious this time. Um, I was just going to say that uh, I think I got it. I think, well, a partial answer is that um, men can die, and men are, and you you, you almost said it, you did say it, um, that men are afraid of death, and he he gives them long life. Yeah. And actually, they do get their wish, and they get to live, quote-unquote, for, forever, but as ringwraiths. And I think that passage, when he describes what a ringwraith is, should be uh, talked about in the next class. Yeah, we can totally come back to that. We did kind of skip over the ringwraiths, uh, and I don't want to just totally skip over the ringwraiths. But yeah, the last thing that I would touch on that you were saying there, but my favorite, I think this is again another thing, another moment, another uh, sort of phrase that really jumped out at me um, this time through. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, yes, on page 289. The Nazgul were they, the ringwraiths. Uh, so we we're, 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 we know that they they desire to escape death, right? He promises them immortality, promises them power, um, and and power even over death, that they would no longer be subject to death. Um, the Nazgul were they, the ringwraiths, the enemy's most terrible servants. Darkness went with them, and they cried with the voices of death. Um, so on the one hand, it sounds like, ooh, see, the promise is made good. You know, now they're not subject to the darkness. Now darkness goes with them. And they're not subject to death. You know, they they cry with the voices of death. See, they do have power over death. They do have power over the darkness. And yet again, like Morgoth before them, locked in his own little personal hell in prison of his own creation, um, and already bound by the, by the uh, you know, the iron crown around his forehead, which is going to be the iron collar around his neck. So we have the Nazgul. Um, they, they just, the state they have put themselves in is one of permanent darkness and permanent death. 
um, perpetual death, that is, continual dying. They cried with the voices of death. Um, they haven't escaped death. Um, quite the, quite the, um, quite the reverse of it. Um, Okay, so uh, we'll stop there. I can see you guys are uh, laying very detailed plans for how to delay, how to delay me further and more successfully next week. Um, because darn it, if we didn't actually get about halfway through this time, so I think we still are on pace for my uh, my uh, my halfway. This is exactly the, I wanted to get up to the last alliance, and there we go. Um, so uh, no problem. Keep telling yourself that, Dave. Keep telling yourself. Um, okay, so um, so uh, next week may well be, indeed, I anticipate will be our last discussion on the text here. So, anyway, we'll um, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how things play out next week. So, anyway, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, uh, both. Uh, tonight and for uh the you know the the weeks that we have been uh uh here on middle earth network radio um so thanks everybody and good night this is Laura Burkholz. Thanks for listening to the Silmarillion Seminar. As Professor Olson said, this was the penultimate session of the Silmarillion Seminar. The recording of the final episode, however, was lost. Therefore, the Silmarillionaires are going to come together and record another final episode, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Once again, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.